Welcome, everyone, to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of The Week, Bill Galston of Brookings and The Wall Street Journal, and sitting in this week for Linda Chavez, we're delighted to welcome the publisher of The Bulwark, Sarah Longwell. Thanks so much for having me. It's Delighted. great to have you. Well, this week, uh, President Trump's longtime associate, some might even say Rasputin, uh, Roger Stone, was found guilty on all seven counts against him. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against President Trump on the matter of his tax returns. That will now apparently go to the Supreme Court. The RNC announced that it will hold its national meeting at the Trump Doral Resort in Florida. Elizabeth Warren's campaign is marketing coffee mugs emblazoned billionaires' tears. North Korea rebuffed U.S. overtures for more meetings. And on we go with the impeachment saga. But I want to start this podcast with a discussion of something non-impeachment related. Uh, we'll, we'll have a lot to discuss about impeachment, obviously. But um, the first day of the impeachment hearings, Wednesday, um, the president met with uh, Erdogan in the White House. And I just let's just quickly review, be, because this behavior of Trump's um, arguably is unprecedented in our lifetimes. Okay, so let's let's see. Uh, Turkey first announced, among many other things, it announced that it was purchasing Russian S-400 surface-to-air missiles, which can knock down our planes. Um, and threaten the NATO alliance. Um, Trump was unperturbed. He blamed former President Obama for this. Um, in late October, of course, following a phone call with Erdogan, Trump announced that he was withdrawing U.S. troops from the Kurdish areas of northern Syria, giving Turkey uh, permission to invade and crush our Kurdish allies. When this provoked an outcry, Trump sent a letter to Erdogan telling him not to do what he had just told him by phone he could do, and saying, let's work out a great deal and threatening to destroy the Turkish economy. Trump announced sanctions on Turkey as the Kurdish areas were being overrun, and of course, ISIS fighters were released. Okay, a few weeks pass. Trump characterizes a truce as a great victory for his diplomacy. He cancels the sanctions, which were never implemented, of course, and invites Erdogan for a White House visit. Um, and that visit took place this week. Um, now, here's what we know. Well, first of all, Trump did agree to have five Republican senators present at the meeting uh, who are much more critical of Turkey. But Erdogan subjected everybody present to uh, the uh, showing of a video, a propaganda video, attacking the Kurds. Um, and this is the part that is just amazing. Erdogan handed back to Trump the letter that Trump had sent him. Hands it back to him. Now, uh, during the, during the uh, 2016 campaign, Hillary Clinton said at one point that if someone, she said something along the lines of anybody who can be triggered by a tweet doesn't, uh, should not be trusted with, with nuclear weapons. Did we anticipate that the bigger problem would be what an unbelievable wuss Trump is vis-a-vis -vis strongmen like Turkey. This isn't even Putin, who at least has 
hundreds and thousands of nuclear weapons. This is Turkey. Sarah, what do you say? I think, you know. (laughs) What can (laughs) one say? (laughs) You know, I think part of, uh, you know, the myth of Donald Trump is so much around his ability to be a negotiator. And I actually don't think it gets nearly enough play what a bad negotiator he is, especially in the context of these foreign adversaries. And and I, I don't know why it wasn't covered more. I mean, if you look at the way Turkey talked about Erdogan's visit, it was clear that they felt like Erdogan embarrassed Trump. Damn he right. owned the <laughs> United States. And yet we in this country, we sort of, everyone goes apoplectic that Erdogan was here and everything, but there's not nearly the... Uh, coverage of just how much Trump gets owned, humiliated, by, humiliated, um, by by much lesser adversaries. Yeah, um, Damon, what about you? Oh, that's a great point, and uh, it shows the the great ironies of the Trump era. Um, I mean, you have you have on the one hand a lot of Trump's supporters in the Republican Party are pretty much Marx um, in the sense of. Uh, the victims of a con man in this, and that they support Trump, give him, uh, their, uh, political, uh, political support and he's in power and, uh, continues doing what he wants. And what he does actually doesn't help them at all. You know, he starts a trade war and now the government is on the hook for having to give extra uh, monetary support to farmers, uh, uh, manufacturing jobs haven't come back. All the things that Trump promised, he promised the wall. The wall is constantly, he constantly claims that it's going up and it isn't really. It's all just kind of a shell game. But yet Trump is the mark when it comes to his relationships with people around the world. He wants nothing more than to be thought of as a strong man among strong men. He wants, he, his vision of being president is to pal around with people like Putin and Erdogan and Bolsonaro in Brazil and, and Orban in, in Hungary. And these kind of soft authoritarian guys all get together and yuck it up and, you know, slap each other on the back and talk about divvying up the world for their own enjoyment. And in fact, he, he arranges meetings like this with these people and all they do is laugh at him behind his back as soon as they leave <sighs> the room. And that yeah. is that is where we are today, uh, my friends. It's 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 uh, truly something astonishing to see. So, Bill, I look. This is this is a political t- podcast, not a psychiatrist's office. But isn't it just unbelievable that a person who is so easily triggered by the you know third rate of a third rate celebrity's comments about him or some you know Republican city councilman or something, and he'll, he'll come out guns blazing. But when he is so obviously humiliated by by strongmen and despots around the world, he seems not to get it. He seems not to see that he and we, by extension, are being humiliated. Mona, I talk about a lot of things. I am... I am just baffled by this. Usually when I see someone whose behavior I don't understand, I try to imagine what it would be like to be that person in those circumstances and then construct a reasonable path from what I don't understand to what at least I can conjecture with some degree of plausibility. In this case, I'm just baffled. Uh, What did he get out of the meeting beyond humiliation? 
He got no give from Erdogan on the Turkish forces, as far as I can tell. He got no give on you know the the Russian purchase of missiles, the purchase, purchase of, of Russian, Russian missiles. missiles. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some talk before the meeting that there was a middle way where Erdogan would keep the Russian missiles but agree not to deploy them. Right, right. Uh, and if there had been any agreement about that, I think we would have heard about it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so here, here is a man who will not offer a White House meeting to the reformist new you know, leader of Ukraine when it would be clearly in our interest as well as Ukraine's to do that and instead invites someone to the White House who has spat in his face and who used the White House meeting to spit in his face again. again. What's yeah. wrong with this? I, 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 I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah. And I, you know, there is a, there's an old Latin phrase, if one is still permitted to speak Latin in this town, after the <laughs> quid demise quid of quid pro quo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, and the old Latin phrase that lawyers use is res ipsa locutor. Yeah. The thing speaks for itself. Yeah. And on the one hand, it speaks for itself in all of its folly. On the other hand, it conceals itself in all its incomprehensibility. Yes, uh, very well said. Look, uh, one of the things that um, one of the things that I wonder when all of this is over, whether we'll ever find out. You know, what does Trump say to Putin in those meetings? What goes on there? Um, the people who say, the Republicans who say, wow, what a complete invention this whole thing was about a Russia collusion, about any sort of a corrupt relationship between the Trump campaign and the Russians or even Trump and Putin. Uh, I, think they're, I think they're overreaching because his behavior toward Putin has consistently been bizarre and um, of a piece with what we're seeing with Erdogan and Duterte and others, but but even more so if there's if there's one figure around the world. And remember, the last time he saw Putin, um, he was talking then about having a White House visit uh, uh, for Putin. Um, it is um, it there. Who was it? Was it Tillerson who recently speculated that he couldn't understand the president's attitude toward Turkey and he had to guess that it must have been a uh, financial interest based on his the building in, in uh, Trump Istanbul? I don't know. Uh, One has to assume that there is some incentive that we can't see because the behavior is too bizarre. But I do think it could turn out that it is something because Trump is such a small person with such small and narrow interests, that it could be something as small as, boy, I hope to build a hotel there someday. And so I'm going to be like, like we could we could think that there's a bigger plot that they have something on him in this big way. And it could literally just be some kind of narrow incentive that only Trump understands. And one of the things that has become clear is that when you you see even just not to turn us to impeachment, but when you think about the whole process of impeachment right now, when you listen to people testify, you hear it and you think, how is it possible that this is happening and that one whole political party is ignoring the stakes of all of this? But there's a reason that they can, and it's because 
the American people don't seem to care that much if he stands on the stage with Vladimir Putin and sides against the American intelligence community. They don't seem to care, at least his political party, but even Americans in general, his foreign policy things, the things that make people's heads explode in Washington, that even, you know, the the withdrawing from, from Syria and the abandonment of the Kurds caused massive waves through the Republican establishment. You know, they hate seeing those things, but it seems to not make a dent or even a ripple in sort of domestic American understanding or implications about how they feel about the president. And so he knows that at the end of the day, he just wants to look presidential standing next to other world leaders. It doesn't seem to matter to him what the interactions end up being like because it never has an implication for him from his voters. So I, I agree with that, but I would amend what you said in one small way. Sure. It's it's very notable that he likes to stand on stage with with dictators and strongmen, not so much with foreign leaders. He's not crazy about being with Angela Merkel or or people who've been democratically elected. It's the it's the despots who get his blood going. Well, that's because they suck up to him because they they know they they've got the keys to Donald Trump and our Western allies. You know, try to to some degree. Um, I don't know that they chide him, although maybe Angela Merkel has. But, you know, yeah. they try to say, hey, you can't keep doing this. And he just that's not what he wants to hear. He wants the sucking up of di- dictators, even if what it really means is that they are um, in their own way making fun of him. You know, every time I think about Trump and foreign leaders, I just remember the I think it was the G20 where MBS and Putin see each other and they do this high five kind of handshake laugh to each other like they're 12 years old and they've just beaten up some kid in the schoolyard and they're celebrating over it. Like, I know that's how they view them. That's how I think about it in my head. Now, that's a really good point. I had forgotten about that. All right. So so it was uh, it was right and proper for you to bring up the impeachment uh, this week. Um, so what we had this week was, according to Devin Nunes, um, a spectacle, a TV show. Um, this is after the D- Republicans had spent several weeks decrying the uh, Star Chamber, Soviet-style uh, secret sessions and uh, so forth. So take your pick. Um, look, he- here's the reality of 2019 America. Fox viewers saw one thing. And MSNBC viewers saw something completely different. Um, Fox has more viewers. Um, actually, Fox has more viewers than ABC and CBS. I was I happened to look at the numbers. Maybe it's because people who watch news, you know, tend to tune into the cable channels at a time like this. But in any case, um, the uh, the it's not as if we can sit around and say. Um, how do you think the American people will respond to these incredibly um, distinguished witnesses who spoke movingly of their service to this country? I mean, when I was watching uh, the testimony of these men and, and one woman, I was thinking, you know, the, the, the Republicans and conservatives that I have known my entire life are really stirred by military service, by long traditions of devotion to country, by patriotism. These people recited all of that in their personal uh, bios and have lived it. Um, and yet it, it won't it won't be presented it wasn't presented that way to the Fox audience. And so is it all just pointless? What do you say, Bill? Pretty nearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that with no pleasure. Uh, 
But unless there's some unexploded bombshell or IED that someone steps on, uh, I'm afraid that the, the outcome of this is pretty much foreordained. And it reflects what people like me, but hundreds of different people in town and outside of town have been writing about for the past 10 years. That is the increasing polarization of not just the political system, uh, but the political culture and many ordinary people have gotten wrapped up in it. Uh, and the, you know, the, the ability of facts that are against the interests of one team to influence one's own view, is just that has declined very dramatically. Uh, I recently reviewed the trends of public opinion during the two previous impeachment episodes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in Bill Clinton's case, his popularity actually rose as the impeachment proceedings went on. In the case of Richard Nixon, uh, the share of Americans who thought that he should be impeached and removed from office started at 19%, and then over the next 15 months tripled to 57%. People were tuning in, paying attention, and changing. In this case, as far as I can tell, it's making no impact whatsoever on the balance of opinion. Uh, the share of Republicans who think he ought to be impeached and removed moved a little bit in the very first 10 days after the news broke, and since then it's been a total flat line. And similarly for Democrats and independents, we've gotten a wealth of new detailed information, and the consequences for public opinion have been nil. Damon, um, this is a this is a show now. Um, to some degree, televised hearings have always been had an element of showmanship. There was no question about it. Uh, the, the the Army McCarthy hearings, uh, you know, it, it was very clear they were playing to a television audience even even back then. Um, but at this point, it has become such a show that they, before a single word was spoken at the hearing. Uh, the camera panned to big poster boards that the Republicans had put up behind the members' seats that said various things. And one of them was, if we don't impeach this guy, he may get reelected um, and so forth. So my question for you, Damon, is kind of pulling back the lens here. Are we suffering from too much democracy? I mean, this is so dumbed down. It seems designed to appeal to the dumbest members of the audience. Well, that's for sure. Um, and I mean, the fact <laughs> is, a lot of what we see on the right today, you know, it's a complicated story of how we've gotten here. But one important thread is uh, a kind of transformation of politics into a kind of blood sport, uh, a spectator blood sport. Um, that started with Rush Limbaugh in the early 90s, and then a few years later with Fox and a kind of intensification of that of that way of looking at politics such that you end up with the situation where we're in today where you have the impeachment hearing and i i have some sympathy for the the democrats and the situation they're in they have a very difficult uh line to walk and that is as follows if they do what they unfortunately, I think, allowed to happen on on uh, Wednesday, when you had uh, Taylor uh, and Kent, uh, the two uh, 
uh, diplomats testifying. If you noticed, if you listened to the hearings, it did not remain focused as I think it must at like a laser on what Trump did in that phone call. That is what the impeachment needs to be about. Did he, in fact, attempt extortion to get a foreign leader in need of aid to intervene in an American election on the president's behalf by digging up dirt against his opponent? That, even when it's put simply like that, sounds outrageous and impeachable and, in my opinion, worthy of removal. However, what we end up with is that uh, at the actual uh, hearings, a good part of the actual testimony and conversation had to do with these more amorphous questions of foreign policy. Was Trump being, you know, being too much in Putin's corner? Should he have been siding more with Ukraine's anti-corruption efforts? And, you know, when it came to every individual policy question, I probably would agree with the insinuation that Trump's being a fool on all of this and making bad decisions. But that's not what you're impeaching him for. You can't make it look like you're impeaching the president over a policy dispute because you don't impeach presidents over policy disputes. Um, and then today, on Friday, you actually had kind of the opposite problem where Trump uh, uh, actually tweeted uh, a criticism of uh, the, the witness on the, uh, there in the hearing. And then the Democrats began to talk about how, oh, we're going to add a, 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 an, an article of impeachment. You're intimidating the witness. That's turning them into the circus that the Republicans want them to be. And it simply might not be possible to hold hearings in this kind of an environment that where you actually kind of remain focused and keep it high-minded, focused on the grave issue before the country. Because there are so many forces in the media and on the side of the Republicans that do want to turn it into a circus. Trump is excellent and is very talented at doing that. And uh, you even see the Democrats, I think, sort of falling for the trick, which is unfortunate. But, you know, uh, Bill Bill predicted a month ago that uh, this was all uh, pointless. And I'm sorry to say he, he was correct, I fear. Uh, so, Sarah, if you don't impeach a president who behaves in this outrageous fashion, are you then lowering the bar for the next person. We've always said that we worry that the next bad president that we get may not be as incompetent or foolish as this one. And uh, then having let all of these standards lapse, we'll really be in in trouble. Went to you. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I listen to this podcast um, and I'm constantly noting um, Bill's uh, how much he doesn't like the idea of impeaching Trump, which is funny because it is us never Trumpers who are like, of course you have to impeach him. Of course you need to lay down the standard. Uh, I know that you you make the distinction between a political matter and a prudential one, um, but I think on both matters it is incredibly important um, to say that a president cannot get away with this behavior. I think that you know the Democrats are a little bit damned if they do, damned if they don't on this because, you know, you had the Bill Taylor uh, and Kent testimony on Wednesday, and I thought it was incredibly compelling testimony. I mean, I listened to to Bill Taylor and thought he oozed credibility and thought um, what he was laying out there, especially the part where he 
um, talked about uh, his staff member just overhearing this call between Ambassador Sondland and the president. I mean, on what planet? And, and maybe a lot of people don't realize just how irregular that is. But the idea that, you know, you'd just be sitting at a restaurant where anyone could hear and enough people on over- a cell phone, on a cell phone <laughs> and enough people overheard that call that like. Was it on speakerphone while he was eating his, I mean, multiple people, that's crazy yeah. stuff. And so, so the thing is, and like, but the, the, the readout from the day, especially from this, the lame media is, you know, well, it was interesting, but not enough pizzazz, you know, yeah. I mean, they want, they're just, they're desperate for the circus. And I thought, I sat and thought it was incredibly compelling, incredibly convincing to me, number one, that our diplomats are excellent. Uh, that they are doing an incredible job, that they are serious people, that our foreign, our original, not the Trump foreign policy in Ukraine, is a uh, is a dignified and honorable foreign policy that they are trying to carry out. And that what Trump was doing with the shadow foreign policy is absolutely insane. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it's tough, though, because when they uh, the Democrats try to make that case and really say, look, this is this is uh, outrageous. It reads as, well, you just want to impeach this guy. You've always wanted to impeach him. You're just anti-Trump. Um, and so so I think they're in a little bit of a of a, of a tough spot. Um, Are you arguing for my position or against my position, Sarah? <laughs> well, I'm, I, 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 I am, well, I was, I'm arguing against your position to the original question, which was, should he be impeached? Um, and, and don't we have to go through this process, even if, even if you can't get a conviction? Uh, um, what, for the record, that was not the question I was asked. A couple podcasts ago. Uh, I will be happy to rehearse my answer to that question. Uh, well, go we go ahead if you want, because I, I have to disagree with you then on a second thing too. <laughs> okay, um, go for so it. So, which one do you want to start? But this is called beg to differ, right? I'm going to beg to differ. Uh, I don't hear the begging. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is this is fine. Um, my position from the get go has been that the president of the United States, this one, would be removed from office by the people of the United States and not by the Senate of the United States. And nothing that has happened since then has changed my mind about that. Uh, That being said, it was never my position that this conduct should go without notice, inquiry, or a declaration from the Congress of its views on what the president has done. That's why I advocated what the rules of the House and Senate permit, namely a formal motion of censure. If you agree with me that the Senate of the United States is not going to remove him from office, then all the good that will be done by the entire procedure will be done through the process of inquiry in the House of Representatives. If anything, allowing him to walk away from this with a party line vote in the Senate will strengthen his position and not weaken it. So, you know, you're happy to disagree with any piece of that argument, but I'd like to know exactly which one it is. Yeah, so this is this is it. I think, um, you know, if you had told us eight weeks ago um, after Mueller, you know, had his hearing and it was such a dud and, and really didn't make a difference and clearly people weren't going to read a 400-page report and it was clear that after all the storm and drung, nothing was going to come out of that that was going to actually result in any kind of penalty for for Trump, right? If you had said at that point, we're going to be in impeachment eight weeks later, we, everybody would have been like, but why? How is that possible? And my, my point in saying that is that the environment with the president 
who is as corrupt as I believe that he is, this environment could change on a dime, and we have seen it change. And so when people say you're never going to can get a conviction in the Senate, I am I agree that it is a long those are long shot odds, but you don't know what can come from these hearings. You don't know what could break wide open, what new information could be revealed that could shift the polling, which actually brings me to the the second thing that I think I might disagree with, which is if if there has been polling since this testimony began, I haven't seen it. So I don't know if this public testimony is changing uh, the public perception around this Ukraine issue. I mean, right now you have about 52 percent where it's leveled out of Americans who believe that President Trump should be impeached and removed. Now, that has shown a tremendous break among independents where the number has gone up, I think, a net 19 points. And then it is hovering around 10 percent with Republicans. But the question is, is if you can go from 52 percent to 60 percent, another eight points that could come from a public testimony, you know, having making a meaningful difference in public opinion, that would be really incredible and would put him well ahead of where Nixon was from a polling standpoint, um, you know, when he resigned. And so I guess for me, I still feel like this is is live and that I wouldn't count out the possibility that I, I, and I totally hear you. I, and I completely agree. The partisanship is as is very locked in and it, it does seem unlikely. But I just I also wouldn't uh, rule against an outside chance that the environment, the political environment could shift substantially. By the way, there's nothing in my position that rules out what's now going on, right? I viewed censure, and I continue to view it, as an off-ramp. If my judgment about the underlying politics turns out to be incorrect for the reasons you state, then it would be perfectly possible to proceed uh, to the Senate with some hope of success. Barring evidence that there is some hope of success, I don't see the point. As a matter of fact, I can see a reason not to. Uh, Bill, let me ask you this. Yes. Do you think that these hearings would have, that these witnesses would have come forward in these hearings if they were merely a matter of investigating whether or not the Congress should censure the president rather than an impeachment? I I do not know. Mm -hmm. I do not know. But, uh, but my sense of these witnesses is that they have come forward out of a deep personal conviction uh, that something very inappropriate and wrong has occurred, a deep sense of duty to what – it's the secular version of a religious vocation that these Foreign Service mm -hmm. officers that's the kind of – that's the kind of compact they entered into. Uh, and so I, I see them acting out of patriotism, duty, and conviction – and it's not at all clear to me that they would have refused to come forward and offer essentially the same testimony in an oversight proceeding. Mm. So I'm, I just don't know. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, I'm. I have my doubts. Uh, well, yeah, I have my uh, doubts. We, but, will, but, we will never know. No, will we will we? never know that. But but while we're on the topic of um, of these foreign service officers, I, I, let me say a word about this from my own experience. So I worked uh, for President Reagan in the White House worked on foreign policy issues, worked with the National Security Council, and, um, of course, we interacted a lot with the State Department. And there was, you know, there was considerable um, suspicion, shall we say, of the of the career civil service, um, the, the uh, Foreign Service saying, well, you know, they, they tend to lean to the left, which I think is true. They tend to vote more for Democrats than Republicans, probably. But, but... 
um, it wasn't this kind of poisonous, ignorant, stupid, just blanket hatred of people who chose that as a career. There was an understanding that some of them did agree with us, and even the ones who didn't, they weren't our enemies. They were American citizens who were um, serving their country, and for the most part, Foreign Service officers keep their own personal views out of their jobs. And uh, Well, you've just distinguished eloquently between conservatism and populism, mm. right? And we are, you know, we are not in a conservative moment. We're in a populist moment where the mistrust of expertise and professional elites who claim to have it uh, is the dominant sentiment of the day, aided and abetted by leaders who've deliberately fomented and whipped up that sentiment for narrow political purposes. That's, and, and, True, uh, I didn't agree with Ronald Reagan. You know, I worked for the man who tried to defeat him after one term, and we all know how that worked out. But I never believed that he was he was insincere, and I never believed that he was trying to whip up public anger or prejudice for pers- for personal or political reasons. So, this is a totally different moment, and it's that difference that drives a lot of my practical judgments about what's achievable here. And now, hmm. um, so Damon, um, it's interesting. Bill Taylor, one of the witnesses, actually penned an op-ed a few years ago, critical of the Obama administration's um, choice not to give uh, military aid to Ukraine in its uh, struggle against uh, against Russia. Um, uh, are you seeing any significant change in the attitude of the Democratic Party about? foreign policy in light of Trump. Um, I I don't personally recall ever hearing so many Democrats wax eloquent about the importance of American strength and leadership in the world. It's a no win that blows no good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, Donald Trump is like a, a, a gigantic magnet and he has the, you know, his negative side and the positive side. And uh, he repels Democrats with everything he says and does. So, uh, you know, the, the Democratic, when you look at polling on immigration, Democrats have moved very sharply to the left in a very short amount of time. Now, some of that preceded Trump, but it really accelerated when Trump got us, uh, basically once his campaign began and he was demonizing immigrants, and then especially since he's been president and acted on it. Um and you've seen that across a range of, of issues where, uh, you know, uh, attitudes toward Russia, where suddenly, you know, wow, the, the default position for re- the Republican electorate is to kind of like Russia. And, and, uh, the, uh, Democrats, you know, now uh, can't stand Russia and Putin and, uh, they fear Russia and see them as a major enemy, whereas they mocked when Mitt Romney talked about that in 2012. So everywhere Trump goes, everybody polarizes in opposite directions. And on foreign policy, what you are seeing is the sort of, uh, the, the migration back of, uh, the neoconservative position on foreign policy, which really was just hawkish liberalism, uh, on the Cold War. 
Uh, if you go back to uh, Kennedy and Johnson, uh, you had a kind of rise of a little bit more of uh, uh, dovishness with McGovern and uh, in his own way. It's a little more complicated with Carter, but it migrated to Reagan uh, and the Republicans and has been there on the more hawkish side ever since. And it seems to be perhaps migrating back now to the Democrats because the Democrats are now in this position of trying to defend themselves against this president who is, uh, he's sort of, uh, I don't know what, how to describe it. I don't like the term isolationist because I don't think that's what he's doing at all. But this, uh, this kind of, uh, America as, as a party of one and just sort of making relationships with countries around the world based on whether Trump uh, wants to, have, as I said earlier, kind of spend time backslapping with, uh, with the, the dictators in charge of those countries. So it has nothing to do with NATO, the West, and uh, the kinds of concerns about national interest that have focused American foreign policy for decades now. So it's a very odd spectacle where you could see, uh, in some ways, depending on which Democrat wins next time, uh, that the Democrats are now kind of uh, the, the party of what is called neoconservatism, kind of principled moral uh, hawkishness. So yeah, who who knew? Okay, we have we have a beg to differ moment here, Bill. Well, or <laughs> a beg to agree in a way that actually <laughs> leads to difference. Uh, I think you buried the lead, Damon, until the very last sentence that you uttered, because if you if you read the foreign policy speeches of all the presidential Democratic presidential candidates, which I have for my sins, <laughs> uh, you will find that some of them will go in the direction that you suggested, and others will go in a very, very different direction. Uh, but that's why I said depending yeah, on who wins. Yeah, but, that's, but, but, but the idea that the Democratic Party as a whole is being, is being induced or forced into a more hawkish stance by these events, I think is, not, is, is just not true. And if one of the two leading progressives gets the nomination, we would, if they could wave a wand and make foreign policy materialize the way they can think they think they can wave a wand and make profound domestic changes materialize, uh, we would see deep cuts in the defense budget and a policy of what might pejoratively be called peace through weakness, which tends not to work out very well. So. Uh, uh, now, what we are discovering on the other side is that, you know, is that Republican engagement in the Cold War was sustained by anti-communism, and once and and once Russia was no longer communist, uh, the main uh, the main predicate uh, for Republican engagement, as as the Republicans had since Arthur Vandenberg. Uh, was 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 taken away, and much of the party has reverted, regrettably, to Robert Taft. Well, I, I would I would just I would just say, uh, 
at the end, when the Soviet Union ceased to exist, the Cold War was over. So there was no need to continue to fight a Cold War with a, uh, an enemy that, that had ceased to exist. But what also happened, and it, it took a lot longer, but arguably what has now begun to happen is that, at least on, in some provinces of the right, um, the, the values and the principles that we claim to speak for when we were fighting the Cold War, like concern about liberty worldwide, um, has now been supplanted by a, an America first uh, kind of might makes right attitude, which is, which is in stark contrast to the values that we proclaimed I couldn't, before. Look, Ronald Reagan gave the Westminster speech that established the National Endowment for Democracy. Right. You know, Bush, George W. put that, that speech on steroids with his second inaugural address, but both were deeply sincere yeah. that being, a, being against the Soviet Union wasn't just about being against communism. It was being in favor of democracy and human freedom around right. the world. And that commitment, it seems to me, has been abandoned by the president and by everybody who aids and abets him in the Republican Party. I completely agree. So let us turn now to... Um to the Democratic Party. Uh, we had two new candidates expressing interest this week. Um, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, um, uh, who could, in theory, spend a billion dollars of his own money, should he choose to make a run of it. Um, and Deval Patrick, uh, former governor of Massachusetts, good friend of Barack Obama, um, who uh, lots of Obama's people were interested in courting earlier in this process, thought that he would be a worthy candidate, but he turned them aside and said he wasn't interested. Now he's expressing interest. So, Sarah, what do you, uh, what do you make of this? Is, is, is this all a commentary on Joe Biden's perceived weakness? It is. I mean, I, I honestly, it, it seems to me, and, and I could be wrong, and this hand-wringing has been going on for a very long time, but it seems to me that that New York Times-Siena poll that showed um the the democrats performing uh, underperforming in the key swing states really freaked people out um that you know it showed joe biden really only winning by a couple of points elizabeth warren losing and so yeah there's this idea that on in that sort of centrist lane that responsible establishment lane that that basically what there is is either a 78-year-old former vice president who seems to bomb every time he gets into the presidential arena or a 37-year-old mayor from the Midwest who actually is quite progressive but is just more of a, a tonal moderate and everybody is starting to panic that Elizabeth Warren's going to be the nominee and the, the, the centrists aren't going to – and that she's going to lose to Donald Trump and that the centrists aren't, don't, um, don't have a lock on this the way they want them to. The problem is is that the panic seems – to come way too late, number one. I mean, you can't come in and just skip the early states, not do any of the work. Um, I mean, unless Barack Obama is going to lay his hands on Deval Patrick and say, this is my guy, vote for him, I don't see what what sense it makes for Deval Patrick to get in right now. I can't even imagine it. And Mike Bloomberg, he can't win it. Like, listen, if Mike Bloomberg had been in the race from the start, he might have been my candidate. I'm 
fine with with a you know for for those of us who are never Trumpers. I'm looking for the the person who used to be a Republican who's not Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> you know, uh, Mike Mike Bloomberg would would be would probably be fine with me. But you can't come in and skip all four early states and then think you're going to drop eighty million dollars in service to your own candidacy as opposed to helping a Democrat win. I just can't imagine that's going to curry a ton of favor with people. And by the way, one of those states would be South Carolina, where the African American vote is key. And it's not clear to me that Mike Bloomberg is very popular with that constituency. What do you think, Bill? You know the Democrats better. What you don't think stop and frisk is a bad, <laughs> great is a great bumper sticker in South Carolina. <laughs> also, they, have, they haven't been vetted. They both have Me Too problems, like out of the gate. Yep, you know, I mean, do. Bloomberg immediately has one. Deval Patrick apparently, you know, had somebody. Uh, you know, there was a, a family member who was a, a accused of rape or or did did rape, and he. You know, lobbied. What do you know? So that, yeah, the story is uh, in in Patrick's case, it was that he uh, dismissed um, either a judge or an arbitrator in his brother-in-law's case. Uh, his brother-in-law had apparently committed marital rape against uh, uh, his wife at the time, and and Patrick, I guess, was being lenient on the judge or arbitrator. Can't remember what it was. Um, so not not an accusation. We should be clear that Patrick himself had done anything untoward, but that he w- went easy on a judge. Then in the case of Bloomberg, also what what he stands accused of is is crude and disgusting comments about women, but not actions akin to what we've seen with others like Clinton and Trump. Yeah. New environment, folks. But I'm sorry, but I cut you. <laughs> no, 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 not not at all. Uh, you know. You know, I beg to agree with you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> if you'll take me back. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't see it either. And, uh, you know, if, if Biden were the commanding figure that people a year ago hoped he would turn out to be, there's not a chance in bleep that either of them would be in this race. Now, having said that, I actually think that they are, and people in general, are underestimating Biden's staying power. And I think the most likely scenario is that someone not named Biden will win the first two contests, and someone named Biden will win the second two contests, and then we'll have a Ulysses Grant-style war of attrition that I think he can win. Uh, and I note with interest that Elizabeth Warren's surge peaked almost a month ago. Yeah, that is true. And you know, and really, since she was smoked out on Medicare for all, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she's been moving down in a statistically significant way. I think that may have been the turning point of her campaign. And if so, it was an entirely appropriate turning point. Boy, can I just say that is it almost restores my hope and rationality, you know, because in the Republican primaries in 2016, the joke was, LOL, nothing matters, right? Every single time Trump's lies and absurdities were revealed, it didn't affect his standing at all. He just remained on top. Whereas when Elizabeth Warren fumbled this and had to uh, answer some tough questions, it seems to have dented her her uh, support. So at least something does matter. What do you think, Damon? Well, this was a, a week where um, I, I totally agree with uh, what Sarah said about uh, Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. I think both of their 
well, in, in Patrick's case, I guess, actually uh, has jumped in. And Bloomberg's case, he's still kind of floating trial balloons every couple of days. Uh, and he's done this many times and never jumped in in any race. But he does this a lot. Um, I've, neither of them make any sense. I mean, and Deval Patrick seems redundant. Uh, there are a number of candidates in the race that seem sort of checking boxes, very similar to the one he does. Uh, and they're not really going much of anywhere. So I, why he thinks that he can just sort of say, ta-da, here it is, mid-November, now I'm going to rise to the top. I think it's, it's screwy. But I will say the one bit of good news for me this week for the Democrats is that a poll came out early in the week, a new uh, Monmouth poll of Iowa, showing Pete Buttigieg surging into the lead uh, in Iowa in a way that is really quite shocking, up 14 percentage points since August, into the lead with 22%, followed by Biden at 19, Warren at 18, and Sanders at 13. Now, it's just one poll. We'll see. But it does show that this surge that we've seen for uh, Mayor Pete since that last uh uh, debate almost a month ago where he made this kind of bold uh, dash back for the center after wandering in the wilderness of the left with all the others uh, doing uh, he really made a stand in a number of ways in that debate to define himself anew as a centrist and since then he's gone up in a lot of polls but that one the one in Iowa really was the shocker now we have another uh, debate coming up on Wednesday the first since that happened I suspect uh, everyone on that stage is going to be gunning for Pete uh, and we'll see, but he, he gives me a little bit of hope. I do think he's a little young and untested in a way that makes me nervous, but, uh, in a number of other ways, uh, he's probably my ideal candidate if the options are the, the people before us. So I'm a little bit cheered by that. Um, I, I want to just amend something. Well, it's not an emendation exactly, but, uh, but we talked, I think, last time about the candidates we liked, and I mentioned Amy Klobuchar. So I now want to record uh, a quibble. I, I really do not like it when candidates retreat to race class identity complaints when they're not doing well. And unfortunately, Amy Klobuchar fell into that trap. Um, she's been stuck at about 2 or 3%, and that's that must be frustrating for her. But she took a swipe at Buttigieg and said, oh, you know, if a woman with only that small amount of experience Experience, you know, were that would never have gotten a place on the stage and so forth, and you know, completely ignoring, for example, Buttigieg's military service, which uh, should count for something. And uh, but in any event, I don't think there's any reason to think that um, that Klobuchar has not gotten traction because she's female. I think it's because she's been. I mean, she, I like her. She's kind of more centrist than many Democrats, but uh, she's not very exciting as a candidate, and uh, and she's a little wonky and dull, and maybe that's the reason. But in any case, I I really do not like this business of it's wah wah. It's all because I'm female stuff. Somehow, Marianne Williamson has found herself onto the stage, and Tulsi Gabbard's been getting a lot of play, and neither of them are particularly talented <laughs> um, or or uh, you know. Uh, well-known or or have a lot of experience. Uh, and I thought that was really poor form on Klobuchar's part, somebody who I had really liked. And I think the reason that she hasn't gotten traction is because right out of the gate early on, those stories about her 
throwing binders at people's heads and, you know, forcing people to eat salads with her comb or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think think that hurt her. And then she's been very unsteady as a candidate. She just hasn't been able to really lock in. Um, And the thing about Pete, Pete is very talented. He is, he's young and inexperienced, but boy, is he talented. I am excited for this next debate to see when he gets the front runner treatment the way that um, Warren did last go round to see how he handles it because that could be the difference maker. Well, I, I do agree that he's talented, but I, I, ca- I cannot help repeating a comment that I've made once before on this podcast, which is that in a different world where we hadn't elected a president who had previous to this received zero votes for any office, uh, we would be focusing on the fact that Pete Buttigieg won his last race by 8,000 votes <laughs> as, as mayor of a, a medium to small city in uh, uh, in Indiana. But in well, any case... Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump won the presidency of the well, United I know, States by 80,000 exactly, votes. I know, so. I know. There you <laughs> go. That's true. <laughs> and, and when you call him young and untested, okay, well, Donald Trump is old and tested and yeah. he's failed the test in every respect. No, no question. So I'm, I'm okay no with, uh, yeah. with, with maybe moving on to the next generation well well this is moving down two generations yeah well (laughs) (laughs) i I think maybe Um, we could we could stand to stop litigating some of the same you know boomer fights that have been going on for a very long time yeah deprive me of all my boomer fun (laughs) (laughs) okay boomer taking away my punch bowl just when things are getting good yeah <laughs> All right. I, I do love the fact that um, we live in an age when two of the president's associates, and I'm speaking now of Lev Parnas and Igor Furman, <laughs> um, ran a company called Fraud Guarantee. Uh, I mean, it, it, that that is just an amazing commentary on well, our You can't times. say they didn't live up to their name. <laughs> there right. you go. Truth and uh, advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Fraud Guarantee. <laughs> All right. Um, so moving to our final segment now, things that we want to praise or criticize about be either praise of somebody on the other side or criticism of somebody on your own side. Uh, why don't we start with you, Bill? Well, uh, praising Lindsey Graham is a mugs game because if I say something nice today, <laughs> he'll do something <laughs> terrible tomorrow. <laughs> Having said that, he stood up to Putin, or rather uh, to Erdogan. Erdogan. Mm-hmm. He stood up to Erdogan when Erdogan you know, pulled that outrageous stunt of showing the three-minute video, and Graham just looked 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 him straight in the eye and and said, "I could make and show the same kind of video about what you're doing to the Kurds." Right. And uh, so, thank you, Lindsay. That's you earn some points in heaven for that. Not enough to even the slate, but it's a start. Yeah. Yeah. Good one, uh, Sarah. Do you have one? I didn't warn you about this, That's so okay. if you don't, it's okay. You know, I, I thought of one while we've been sitting here, and I would say that I had been pretty critical of Adam Schiff uh, in the first hearing that he held after we had the readout of the Trump call with um, with Zelensky. He that the the text that we had of that call was terrible and damning and yet he for some reason decided to embellish it and kind of do this paraphrase mob. yeah yeah this this then turn it into almost a skit like thing which trump has really held on to to say that schiff is a liar and and i was so disappointed to see him do that um, and nervous about him presiding over the rest of these public impeachment trials but i got to say i think he has done um 
you know, when when I see the N- NBC headline saying that it lacks pizzazz, to me that is a ringing endorsement <laughs> of the ability to preside over impeachment trials and not let them get um, out of hand and ridiculous and crazy. I thought today, um, with him sort of saying, "Well, we're going to throw that tweet into another impeachment thing," that was like a little on the edge for me. But um, but generally, I would say he has been presiding with dignity um, and and keeping it from becoming a circus. So good on him. Yeah, Damon. Well, uh, as I've uh, indicated in the past, coming up with uh, something to say for this segment is a bit of a challenge for me because I am uh, such a centrist that I'm all over the center. I'm center left on economic things, center right usually on culture and social questions, and then sort of either far left or far right on foreign policy very often. Um, So it can be a challenge to find something. But this week, I want to bring up something that I think I bet everyone uh, on the show can appreciate, which is uh, Caitlin Flanagan's uh, feature story in The New Atlantic, The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate, which is a really incredible, powerful essay that I've seen a lot of people on both sides of the this rancorous abortion question debate in our politics praising, and justly so. It's a really great piece about how we need to face the best arguments for the other side on this question and all questions. And our politics would be better if uh, we did more of that. And that's really what this podcast is all about, isn't it? Yes. Thanks for that reminder. I had seen mention of it. I haven't read it yet, and I will definitely um, correct that. Um, well, mine is um, is about Nikki Haley, uh, someone that I've admired from afar for a very long time. Um, I thought even though anybody who took a position with the Trump administration was in danger of having their dignity and honor tarnished, I thought she handled it about as well as anybody could and did, did a creditable job at the UN, though admittedly that's not that hard of a job. I mean, all you have to do is speak up for America and everyone proclaims you to be a hero. But she In did In this it well. administration, that's a tougher story. Yeah, it is. That's true. That is true. <laughs> so you have to but, give her uh, some credit. We for give that. her credit for that. And uh, and also, she's, she she handled the, the whole uh, church uh, shooting in South Carolina, I thought, very, very well, with great sensitivity. And um, I think she's very intelligent and so on. But um, she's out with a book, and she's clearly positioning herself uh, as the Trump successor in 2024, and she has calculated that she needs to um, to ingratiate herself with the Trump supporters to the point where she is really um, – she, she's gone over – She's tipped over into uh, indignity and dishonesty, frankly. Uh, when she was asked about impeachment, she said, oh, you know, what would we impeach him for? And she, she started, you know, reciting talking points. The Ukrainian, she, quote, the Ukrainians never did the investigation and the president released the funds. I mean, when you look at those, there's just nothing impeachable there. Well, I mean, of course, she didn't have to do that. Um, this is a... a calculation on her part, and uh, I wish she hadn't, and uh, my respect for her has diminished. And with that, I thank you all for joining us, and thank you to listeners. Please uh, rate and review us on iTunes, um, and uh, download our podcast on your phones so that the newest one will pop up. And we thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. (laughs) 